A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. Catherine Whitaker and myself, David Law, sitting in a pub. Well, actually, it's a nice restaurant, isn't it, Catherine? In Wimbledon, of all places, we are in the home of tennis. SW19 at Wimbledon, just a day after the ATP World Tour finals at the O2 Arena, concluded yesterday in rather strange circumstances. And this is, of all the places that we've recorded tennis podcasts over the years, Catherine, got to be one of the strangest of the lot. Because, listen to this, we've got a bit of a backing track. Let's just be quiet for a second and have a listen, see what's playing. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? Catherine Whitaker. So, you're going to have to bear with us, listeners, because uh, that's going to keep happening throughout the uh, duration of this uh, tennis podcast. You are going to hear us talk about tennis, but you're also going to hear whatever this pub, this restaurant decides to put on the jukebox. Um, So, you know, just live with it, (laughs) frankly. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Catherine, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. We've gone musical, haven't we? We've gone, we've gone from an a cappella tennis podcast to a uh, a musical, musically backed tennis podcast. <laughs> it's just, it's a it's a special edition tennis podcast with musical soundtrack. Enjoy. Yeah, we we can't afford our own orchestra, so we've just um, decided to lay on whatever's going on in the pub. Um, but uh, this has been one of the more strange weeks in the tennis calendar that I can remember, I think, ever, certainly on the ATP World Tour, I don't remember so many talking points coming out of an ATP World Tour finals as have come out of the last eight days, Um, right from the one-sided nature of the matches, which became a running joke, honestly. You know, the fact that you were getting 6-1, 6-1, 6-love, 6-1 with top players just getting obliterated Um, or the wheels coming off and they just couldn't barely put the ball in the court in in Marin Cilic's case. Um, And then, of course, this bizarre last couple of days with Stan Wawrinka and Roger Federer apparently having an almighty run-in. Goodness knows 
what happened there, but we'll get on to it. Uh, and then in the final, Roger Federer was unable to show. And that's only, I think, the third time out of more than 1,200 matches in which he was unable to take to the court. And he's never retired mid-match, you know. Uh, but before this one, he couldn't play because of a, a back problem. He's got the Davis Cup later this week. But what a weird week. Well, you've, you've covered it all there. You've, you've left nothing for me to say. Well, so, I mean, uh, so hope you enjoy this start? edition of the Tennis to... Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Sorry, Catherine, what are you saying? Well, where are we going to start? Where, where, what do you want me to um, give my opinions on first? Well, let's find out why, for, first of all, why do you think... No, actually, you know, we're going to start at the, the sharp end, first of all. Roger Federer retiring or, or withdrawing from a tennis match. What was your immediate reaction to that obviously disappointment but uh, how shocking a, a revelation was that for you given what you'd seen the night before would you I mean I think a back spasm was the problem and you know that can that can render somebody just unable to move can't it I've had a few of those in my time blimey <laughs> do not recommend those so poor old Roger Federer he couldn't he woke up and he couldn't move I was I was shocked I mean, as you said, statistically, of all the players on the tour, he is the least likely of all the players that you you might expect might possibly do that. Um, he's the least likely. He's never done it before. Um, I, I, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that he had no other option. If if he had had another option, he would have he would have taken it. There's, the Federer is not. He wouldn't have let down all those all those people watching on the TV, all the people inside the stadium, most importantly. Um, but I was nonetheless shocked. My guess is that it's not something, it's not going to be a lasting injury. It's not something that's going to take him a long time. To, it was acute rather than chronic. Is is We don't have that much information. You probably have a bit more than me, but that, that's my guess. His focus is on being healthy for the Davis Cup next week, um, which... Was that if he hadn't had the Davis Cup next week, and if that wasn't such a priority for him, would the decision have been different? Of course, that crossed my mind, but I don't know. Pulling out of a final, I'd, I'd, what do you think? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a few people have tried to use that as a stick, stick to beat Roger Federer with a little bit. The fact that they've said, well, if it hadn't have been Davis Cup this week, that he would have played. Um, maybe he would. I don't, I don't know. Um, and if that's the case, do you beat him with that stick? Is that fair? Now, personally, my view is, as is yours, that he woke up with, with a back problem and he had a spasm and, and he knows whether he can be competitive or not. Now, do you go out there, just put in a few balls in the court and get him marmalised by Novak Djokovic and, I don't know, potentially risk hurting yourself further because if it's a back problem, it could become it could be a disc problem, goodness knows what. Um, or, or do you just do what he did? And I'm all right with it, actually. I'm OK with it, particularly given that it's him. He doesn't cry off matches. And uh, did, he, did he do it as a, a precaution to some degree? I don't actually think he did. I think he did it because it was hurting and he wasn't going to be able to make a proper match of it. But actually, you know, you only, you've got to, if you're human, I think, I think it's not, it would be stupid not to at least bear in mind that you have got to play again in a week, hopefully. And do you try and risk them both? 
and not be successful in either or do you weigh it up and come to a decision? Absolutely, I completely agree. I don't think with professional elite athletes at the top of the game you can separate the precautionary from the the necessary. I mean, precaution is, is part of everyday management of your body, isn't it? I mean, it's not they're not two separate elements of decision-making. It's just sort of one big melange of factors, isn't it? And, um, I mean, the, the bloke got a standing ovation from the crowd he went out there to tell them you're not going to see the final that you've paid god knows how much money for and he got a standing ovation do you think anybody else in the world would get a standing ovation from 10,000 people or whatever in those circumstances i mean it's i i mean i agree with you i i i wouldn't beat him at that stick mostly because he's roger federer and he's earned every bit of benefit of the doubt over the past 15 years he's he deserves benefit of the doubt more than anyone however would we feel that way if we'd paid however much the tickets cost to go to the o2 last night we might feel differently but the fact but the fact that they applauded him the way they did suggests they probably did understand. They probably did get it. And um, hey, Chris Camo did a fantastic job of minimising the the disappointment of of the crowd last night, didn't he? He he deserves some serious credit for pulling together what he did in terms of the pro set and the um, the exhibition doubles match. Because um, it, I mean, it, let's face it, it was a disaster. But it was a mitigated disaster, given given what they were able to lay on for the crowd. No, I couldn't agree more. The The fact of the matter is that is where Chris Commode earns his money. That is where a leader has to make decisions, has to act quickly, has to jump in and think, right, well, this is the situation. I can't fix Roger Federer's back. What can I do? What can I do to give 17,500 people something to watch that they're going to enjoy? And within three, four hours of, of knowing that Roger Federer was not necessarily going to be able to take to the court. He was giving it until the last minute, but he he went into crisis management mode and he called up Andy Murray, who respects him greatly and wanted to do something immediately from what we're told and, and charged nothing, didn't get a fee. None of the players did. John McEnroe and Tim Henman and Pat Cash all stepped up for free and, and played for the crowd for a, a couple of hours. I think it was absolutely the right thing for them to have done. I'm still pleased they did it. I'm really pleased that they, they saw it the way uh, we would see it, the way tennis fans would see it, and they made it into a nice occasion, just a little musical interlude. Nice that, isn't matching it? matching our mood nicely, don't you Yeah, think? it's great, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you don't need us here on the Tennis Podcast. And the next one we're going to have on this edition of Jazz and Tennis here inside Wimbledon. Oh, this is so much fun. Anyway, where were we? Yes, uh, Chris Commode did a great job, and um, people were angry, though. My word. I, I went outside, and when they initially made the announcement of what was going to be coming on, um, there was a huge cheer that went up from the people left in the stadium that was about half full. Um, people had gone out after the doubles, and, and yeah, people were reacting very happily that, that this was going to be the, the matches. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be all right then. I went out into the concourse area, and people were lining up on the guest information uh, kiosks, demanding their money back, asking why they weren't going to get to see what they'd paid to see, and all this. You know, there are a lot of people there that don't necessarily do 
tennis tournaments and, and are aware that, you know, okay, if it's, if it's not on, do I get my money back or not? And what they've said is that all of the ticket operators will be in touch with them. They will get a partial refund because they did get to see the doubles for a start, which is part of the value of the ticket. Uh, they did get to see Novak Djokovic play tennis. They got to see exhibitions that were put on. Um, but certainly a, a, a movement will be made. They didn't specify what the what the refund would be, but there will be some sort of refund for, for people there. And people got hours worth of tennis to watch. Doesn't, doesn't put it all right. Of course it doesn't necessarily, but I think the tournament did pretty much all they could have done under those circumstances. I think that's a very good assessment. There's, I mean, what, what, else could, what else could they have done? Um, they did the best they could and said, hey, I'd have been annoyed. I'd have been annoyed if I had a ticket. I might have been one of those queuing up at the kiosk trying to get a refund. You've always know. been a troublemaker, you have, haven't you? <laughs> well, you know, I do get to see my fair share of, uh, of, of over-the-hill tennis players. Steady. <laughs> Stator Masters Tennis is coming up, ladies and gentlemen, and none of them are over the hill, uh, but they like this sort of music. But <laughs> that's going to be uh, between the 3rd and the 7th of December inside the Royal Albert Hall. John Mackino, Pat Cash, Tim Hemmer will return from their little interlude at the O2 Arena. That will get them in good shape, won't it? A nice hour and a half on, the, on that O2 Arena centre court there. It was like a prime time advert for the Champions Tour and for the Statoil Masters, wasn't it? It was brilliant. Yes, it was. And uh, we're very pleased to have seen them and they enjoyed themselves immensely. I can tell you, John McEnroe was grinning like a <laughs> Cheshire cat when he came off the court. Um, but uh, yeah, that'll be taking place in a couple of weeks' time. The other intrigue uh, of the week was the semi-final that Roger Federer and Stan Wawrinka played, which really was the only genuinely thrilling dramatic match of the entire week which in itself is a talking point we'll get on to but first of all I mean I think we now know given what happened that maybe Roger Federer wasn't 100% Ivan Lubacic had, had mentioned earlier that he'd seen him practice and that he looked a little stiff after the first couple of games he wasn't hitting the ball like he did against Murray but that's partly I think due to the way that Vavrinka was playing and he was bulldozing the, the ball through uh, Roger Federer but I don't think Federer was, was finding things all his own way he didn't feel that comfortable he was having to adjust his position on the court he kept having to return from way back by the line judges just to give something different to, to Favrinka it was very clever match play uh, Leon Smith who was commentating with me on 5 Live Sports Extra on the radio said he's gone into full match play mode now just to try to find a way to win here because it's not the normal elan of Roger Federer that we're seeing right here. But there were all those match points, and then there was that one moment where Stan Wawrinka stopped playing, turned to his right as he was about to serve, and said something to someone. We don't know who that someone was. However, the people in that area were a couple of photographers, and next to those couple of photographers were the Roger Federer support team, including his father, Robert, his agent Tony Godsick, his wife Merka, and one or two other people who were in that area as well. Don't know who he was speaking to. Reports today say that it was his wife, Roger Federer's wife, was being spoken to by Stan Wawrinka. And it sounds as though, um, well, we, we, ha we don't know. Those reports have been unconfirmed. But, uh, but certainly it was 
an unusual set of circumstances. And the reports today are based on uh, comments from John McEnroe. John McEnroe has said he heard or witnessed Vavrinka and Federer having a heated debate, argument, whatever you want to call it, in the locker rooms after the match until until the wee hours of the morning. Yeah, I think John is slightly exaggerating there because I was standing right next to him <laughs> at the time and, uh, and we were both down in that area of, uh, of, the, uh, of the stadium and yeah, there were closed doors, there, was, there were murmurings that there was a, 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 a private conversation going on. It certainly wasn't into the wee small hours, that was John exaggerating and for effect, tongue in cheek, he was messing around, I think when he said that to some degree. Uh, yeah, I think there was there was a conversation going on, but the reports today have said that those reports, those conversations were taking place for about 10 minutes. Uh, it doesn't mean to say a lot wasn't said in those 10 minutes, and I, and I think that's probably about right. Um, but exactly what the content of those conversations was, I have absolutely no idea. Well, what I hear the allegations are, as as we've already as we've already established, many many of the reports on the the this incident are wholly unreliable or exaggerated. But what I've heard is that Mika has been accused before of of doing something distracting when Vavrinka has been about to serve. I can't believe that. I just can't believe that that has gone on. Um, but that's, that's, that, that, that what I hear is that the accusation is that Mirka deliberately made some sort of noise with the intention of distracting Vavrinka's serve. If that's what happened, I would be blown away. That, I mean, to just, I mean... I don't believe that. I think she might have uh, said, come on, Roger, or something like that. Um, and it might have irritated Stan, but we don't have all the facts. Um, so it just remains one of those intriguing situations, doesn't it? Particularly given that Stan Wawrinka and Roger Federer are about to play on the same Davis Cup team in about four days' time. The French Davis Cup team are probably rubbing, rubbing their hands together, aren't they? Um, descent in the Swiss camp a week ahead of, of the, uh, the big clash in Lille um, and, it, and Davis Cup is all about the team isn't it you can, you, you've seen so many times in the past how a sort of a lesser team not that Switzerland are necessarily the lesser team that's very much for debate um, but how a lesser team can can triumph in Davis Cup through the unity and the, the galvanising effect of, of being a team so it's, it's not what you want I mean it could all be completely Blown up. I have to say, of all, of all the people that I think would be able to smooth this over, those two, I think, whatever whatever's happened, I think I think it'll all be forgotten by tomorrow. Knowing them, um, to the at least to the point. Well, I mean, look, it might be sort of forgiven, not forgotten, but to, at least to the very point that they can crack on as teammates. I, I suspect uh, they will be able to do that. Roger Federer is too cool to let something like this interfere with his big chance of getting a Davis Cup against his name, isn't he? I mean, Federer is in it for the records now, isn't he? And I think the Davis Cup means a heck of a lot to him. Having that against, you know, one of his major motivations at this stage of his career, not the only one, but one of the major ones is, you know, imagining what his 
list of achievements and records is going to look like the day he retires. And having Davis Cup on there matters to him. It makes a difference. It's it's something that Rafa has that he doesn't have. And yes, it's not all about the individual. It's, you know, there's only so much you can... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. You can do because it's about other your countrymen as well, but it it matters to him a lot and he's he's you know Roger Federer could have a job for the UN probably he's he's just too he's just above all of this stuff i i'm sure it will be absolutely fine is he allowed to be prime minister or president or does he have to be from that nation well arnold schwarzenegger is not allowed to be prime minister uh, not allowed to be president of the united states is he because he's from austria so it's got to be a special rule that we can bring in cuz roger federer could do it he'd be good I think I think anybody. But I think most people would be willing to break all the rules for Roger, wouldn't they? This is what I mean. I mean, he can. He's just above above all these worries that mere mortals have, isn't he? He's <laughs> he is indeed. Anyway, so we'll wait, we'll watch with interest, won't we? That's going to be a cracking Davis Cup final. I heard that they're playing it in a twenty-four thousand seat stadium, which is going to be extended to twenty-seven thousand for the sake of this tie, which puts it on a par with the tie, I think, Spain against maybe the US about 15 years ago, something like that, when they when Alex Correcha and Carlos Moya were a team, and I think maybe even a young Rafa. I can't remember whether that was before his time or not, but it was that sort of crowd, biggest crowd ever. And this is indoors. 
27,000 people indoors. Bear in mind that we had 17,800 in the O2. The noise is going to be extraordinary. Um, I wonder how many of those 27,000 have been set aside for Swiss fans. Because it's not far to come. I'm sure there'd be many thousands of Swiss fans willing to make the journey, but I wonder how many, how many seats France are willing to give to the, uh, the away support. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be very interesting. So we'll watch with interest uh, for that. Now, the other talking point that came out from the week was the one-sided nature of the matches. And have you got any theory as to why that was? Because it's the first time it's ever happened here. It's the first time I can remember it happening anywhere. I've not got any overarching theories which can explain, which can explain that undeniable trend. Okay, well, we'll leave that there then. But, I've, but I think there's a certain amount of... I think one factor is that for the, for the players that are in the battle to qualify for London, the Chilliches, the Nishikoris, the Burdiches, Murray even, um, qualifying is seen as the goal, isn't it? For the whole back end of the season, for the in, indoor swing from Asia to the European indoor courts, qualifying is the target. And then they do qualify. They've actually then got to go and go and play the tournament then they maybe there's a bit of a I've achieved my goal by qualifying and they have there's a bit of a letdown and release I don't know how, how that process would work mentally but I think think maybe that could be part of it that the actual playing the event perhaps mentally feels like a bit of an add-on and they put everything into getting there well, discuss you're looking at me very skeptically is well what's your theory then hit me I'm not going to hit you. I'm not that kind of bloke. <laughs> However, um, I think fatigue is a big part of it. Now, I know that we've been playing this event for many years and we've not had this sort of run of results before. But with players that have never done it before, like Chilich, like uh, who else was there? Nishikori, okay, he did pretty well. But he had a few a few moments where you just thought he's gone. He's just got nothing left. Um, who else was new that we had? Uh, well, Vavrinka was in his second year. He did okay, but there was obviously the match he played against Djokovic, where where he struggled. Raonic really struggled, um, and then she had to pull out injured from his final his final rubber. Thomas Berdych was the big surprise. I think that he he lost so heavily to to Stan Vavrinka. He just said it was the worst match he played all year. I think it's fatigue based. To an extent, I mean, we also got to bear in mind just how good Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer actually are, and they on top of their game against players that aren't on top of their game is going to be a mismatch. It's just as simple as that. But I, I think part of it is is those newcomers uh, being nervous and being tired and not being used to it, and therefore they weren't able to play their normal game. I just don't think Raonic and Cilic were doing what they've been doing all year long. Raonic was missing first serves galore, missing forehands galore. Those are his weapons. What's he going to be able to do if he hasn't got those? I think the other thing is, once players were going behind, they just didn't have the mental resources left to mount a comeback. So they could be competitive for two or three games, but when they got broken, we saw it with with Vavrinka, he kept it very close for the first two or three games with Djokovic and then it just went away, alarmingly. Same with Murray, he had Love 30 on Federer's serve in the first game and he was, he was playing good tennis for three games. I know that sounds small fry, but he was playing well and you thought, oh, this could be good. 
and then he didn't win. An, he didn't win a game until the the, the penultimate one. Until yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a horror show. But as soon as he, what I'm saying is, as soon as they went to break down and it, the scoreboard read three one, three love, it was. No matter how hard they tried, there wasn't enough left in the tank, either physically or mentally. I I like that theory. I'm not looking at you sceptically like you were looking at me. I think I think you might be onto something there because I watched the semi-final between Djokovic and Nishikori when Nishikori did manage to muster something in that second set uh, and won the second set and played brilliantly to do so. I mean, there were other factors going on there. Djokovic was incredibly irritated uh, for various reasons. But then in the third set, he went a breakdown, got broken in the first game, and you could see he wasn't up for the fight. You, you, and it was gone. It was gone from that moment. He had, he had done better than the others had. He had more to give. He had managed to muster the fight to come back and win the second set. But he, he just did not, despite being relatively on a level footing, he was one set all, which is a good deal better than a lot of other people, the situations other people were in throughout the week. He had nothing. It, you could see nobody and that suddenly the stadium went silent nobody believed that he had anything left to give um, so I think you could be onto something there David I endorse I endorse your theory I'll tell you what you can't see smug on the radio <laughs> or on a podcast but if you could see my face now it would be the definition of smug uh, now it does set things up nicely for the new year doesn't it there's so many Ten possibilities, really, aren't there? But Andy Murray now, specifically, is is back to the drawing board, isn't he? Because that was a big blow. I have to say, I kind of—I know it might seem like a uh, an irrelevance in the grand scheme of things, but I actually think yesterday, when he came out and played the exhibition match, will have done him a lot of good, both in terms of how he stands publicly and and the fact that he did that. But I think he would have left the court two or three days earlier, just feeling really deflated, having been completely annihilated by Roger Federer. At least he left the court yesterday on a high as a hero and, and looking forward. Yeah, but does he deserve to... N not deserve, that's unfair, but maybe, you know, he was annihilated and maybe he does need to do some serious reassessment. Maybe that will be an enormous wake-up call. Um, you know, he said in his... his his uh, blog for the BBC website afterwards that he's going to, he hinted at rethinking his off-season training. Well, from what I've heard about Murray's off-season training, there's not much more you can add to that. I mean, he does... No, but it, it, what he was making the point about, it's not about how hard I work, it's about what I do. And he was actually talking about adjusting his game as well as his training. Um, now, what that would lead to, I don't know. But... It was, it was as if he was accepting that his actual game just isn't sufficient to compete at the level he wants to compete at, and he needs to adapt it. That was certainly the impression I was left with after watching him last week. I was immensely frustrated. I just felt like he had forgotten how to use his game. He'd forgotten how to... He hasn't forgotten how to hit tennis balls. You know, I saw him in the the warm-up against Raonic, just in the warm-up, and I, it was at courtside, and I could instantly see, not that Raonic isn't a fantastic tennis player, but the cleanness the, it, the, with which Murray hits the ball, the sound the ball makes coming off his racket, he's, he's no less good at hitting forehands and backhands than he has ever been. For me, he's, he's forgotten or misplaced the 
the, the wherewithal to use his game. He's forgotten how to maximise his game. You know, I, I just don't feel like it's rocket science with Murray. It's not quite as simple as be aggressive on every point. I know people, analysts, try and boil it down to, oh, Murray's not being aggressive enough. And that's true to a certain extent. But you're seeing him three, three metres behind the baseline and scrabbling around and not dictating play, not, you know... Balls landing sort of mid-service, you know, midway up the court. Not to mention his second serve, which is just being pummeled by anybody anybody that's brave enough to step into the court. His, his second serve is there for the taking. Um, and it's a second serve of somebody with very little confidence for me at the moment. I feel like he's got to sort of reacquaint himself with, with winning and, and, and his, his... Yeah, but he did that. He'd won 20 out of 23 matches to reach the ATP World Tour final. So he's had the winning feeling. I think it's more his actual game needs to change because, or it needs to go back to what it was at the very least because he, he, he wasn't able to compete quite at that top level. But maybe... But, those those 21 out of 23 matches, was it? That could have lulled him into a false sense of security because as I said in the last podcast, and I was talking about, I think I used the example of his uh, final against Robredo in Valencia. He didn't have to play brilliantly in many of those 21 matches, I don't think. He didn't have to employ his best tennis. He wasn't playing Novak Djokovic, except in the one match when he did have to play no- Novak Djokovic and he was soundly beaten. So I think possibly those 21 wins and the run he went on lulled him into a bit of a false sense of security about his game and allowed him to sort of get into that comfort zone of standing further behind the baseline and not not stepping up. You know, Murray's good enough against most players to win that way. It's against the top players he gets completely exposed. And that's what happened last week. He was completely exposed. Music's really going for it now here inside <laughs> the pub that we're in. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know, I know where you're coming from on, on that score. I have to say you've been very, very good, Catherine. We've had at least half an hour of the podcast, and you haven't brought up, although you kind of did just now, about the predictions that we made in the previous podcast uh, in which I said that Andy Murray would beat Roger Federer. <laughs> Sounds funny now, doesn't it? Uh, even Andy Murray was laughing about that yesterday. Not, not about my prediction, thankfully. I don't think he's heard that. Um, but um, he was certainly laughing about the fact that, uh, that the, maybe Rogers got injured because Andy pushed him so hard uh, in his 55-minute 6-1, 6 love 6 one drubbing uh, annihilation. But, you know talking point for the tennis podcast was the one did Federer throw him a dignity game I don't think he did personally I I think I I think he was genuine in being glad that he didn't win it but I don't think he knows how to throw okay not throw but did he hold back slightly well if he held back slightly he threw it didn't he? But I don't, I don't think he did. I mean, I just think his, in, his belief about the integrity of the great game is such that he wouldn't allow himself to do that. But some people were some people was intimating that he absolutely desperately wanted to beat him love and love on Twitter before it happened. I don't think that's the case, particularly. Uh, I think he was genuine. I think he, he felt uncomfortable. So I, saw, I was in the press conference, and the body language was, oh, I, don't, I don't like it. I feel uncomfortable with it. Um, you know, don't... But the gist of it is I didn't, don't want to humiliate the guy um, and that is 
that's too much, you know. Even though it was humiliating, six love, six one, love and love feels does feel uncomfortable actually against a player of that level. Um, but I don't think you threw it. I don't personally, but you know, there we are. I'm playing devil's advocate. I think you've. I, I agree with you. I th- but I also agree that he was he was pleased Murray did win that game because. I mean, what, 17? Was he 17 when the last time he was beaten, beaten Love and Love? Yes, before he was properly a pro. Yeah. But uh, anyway, who's going to win the, uh, the Davis Cup final, Catherine? Switzerland. How many? Oh, I think it will be 4-1. Oh, so it'll be all over before the, uh, the thing finishes. Uh, you know, so it'll... Be 2-1 overnight and then 3-1? 2-1 overnight and then 3-1. I think it's going all the way. Um, do I think that? <sighs> mm, yes, I do. I think it's going to go all the way. I think it's going to be Switzerland that win it 3-2. I think it'll go level. And Switzerland will win it 3-2. And assuming... assuming uh, that our, both our predictions are correct and Switzerland do, but there's absolutely no reason to think that that will be the case. But assuming we are right for once, uh, where do you think Federer will rank it on his list of achievements? Um, top, top three, probably, I would have thought, um, because he's, he's really set, set this as a goal this year. Um, I think it'll be... He always talks about his first Wimbledon, his most recent Wimbledon... Um, I would have thought those those three probably above all. I mean, obviously the French Open when he finally broke that broke that duck. But yeah, maybe four, top four. Uh, but certainly up there, I would have thought. What are you? I I entirely agree. I think it's going to be huge. I think think we might see some Federer tears, some tears of tears of joy. I think it could be a really incredible moment if he wins the Davis Cup. I think it it could be really special. Blimey, we're agreeing way too much I, this week, Catherine. It's the music that's making me sentimental and emotional. I don't know if you can hear, but it's, it's Elton John <laughs> Rocket Man. It's, it's, it's lulling me into... I see. Well, on the subject of Sir Elton John, of course, he'll be at the uh, Statoil Masters Tennis for the Milan World Team Tennis Smash Hits on Sunday the 7th of December in the evening session. He and Billie Jean King will bring two teams to the Royal Albert Hall uh, and those teams will feature Kim Clijsters, Sabina Lezicki, Martina Hingis, Heather Watson, John McEnroe, Tim Henman, uh, who else we got? Greg Rozetsky, Andy Roddick and uh, tickets are available. StatoilMastersTennis.com Catherine, I'm good. God, that was a good link. I didn't even set you up for that. We didn't ask them to play Elton John. That just all happened organically. That was, that was, that was a link Alan Partridge would be proud of right there. Oh, yes. Well, that was my dream. <laughs> Partridge-esque. David Law here on the Tennis Podcast. I uh, hope you've enjoyed listening to us. Uh, you've been in your training, haven't you, Catherine, for our challenge match at the Royal Albert Hall. Our good friend Dave Levy insisted insisted that we uh, we reference the fact that we are playing our challenge match at the Royal Albert Hall. He wants to know as well, he's part of our team, incidentally, uh, uh, that runs the media side of things at, at that tournament. He insisted on having a role in this match. He wants to be umpire. I've said he can be ball boy. Is there somewhere in between that we can negotiate to? 
What's in between umpire and ball? Line judge? <laughs> line judge. That's what he's going to be. He's going to be line judge. Okay. Um, now, uh, slightly alarmingly, just before we, we sign up, I have to say we're in the pub and Catherine has run here. She's actually run here from home. That's how serious she's taking this. I, on the other hand, have not. Catherine, this is not fair. It's all part of my intimidation tactics, you know. It's, there's nothing more intimidating than arriving to record a podcast to find your co-host purple-faced and out of breath is there. Particularly worrying when the, uh, when the house in particular in, in question is, a, is about four minutes runaway. So um, I, I'm feeling a little bit better about life, uh, given that scenario. Uh, Catherine, you got anything else to say before we go? Yeah, what I'd like to say is I actually live in Putney, which is down, downhill from Wimbledon. So it was actually a sort of... 40 minute uphill run and I still think I got here more quickly than the 93 bus in rush hour all right well we'll accept that we'll believe her thanks for listening speak to you soon deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.